Hello, Sheridan Boise here with a special edition of the More Than This podcast. After weeks of recording and editing, the audio edition of my brand new book, Resilient, Your Invitation to a Jesus-Shaped Life, is now here. And today you are going to get a week's worth of episodes for free. A little bit about the audiobook. It's a 90-episode devotional journey through Jesus' famous speech, The Sermon on the Mount. This is the speech that has inspired the Martin Luther King Juniors of the world and the Gandhis of the world and the Dietrich Bonhoeffers and all sorts of other history-making folks. It's a speech that will recalibrate your callings, your relationships, your spiritual practices, and your life choices, and help you develop spiritual, emotional, and relational strength. Now, each episode is only three to four minutes long, and that makes it perfect for daily listening on the go. You can listen to Resilient as you travel to work, as you walk the dog, as you go for a jog, as you visit the gym, as you do the dishes. It's designed to help you begin or end the day well. Now, the Resilient audiobook is available for download right now. It's over five hours of audio. That is three months worth of biblical inspiration for you if you use it every day. You can find it on Amazon, iTunes, Audible, and Christian Audio. All the links are available at sheridanvoisey.com slash resilientaudiobook. Here's the introduction and seven free episodes. Take a listen, then I hope you'll rush out and download the rest of the Resilient Audiobook and find your own inner strength. Enjoy. Introduction My experiment began shortly after I arrived in England. Merrin and I had moved here from Australia after one of the most tumultuous experiences in our lives. After ten years of waiting, our dream of having a child had come to an abrupt end, and we had made the move around the world to start our lives again. For me, the relocation meant leaving a fulfilling career in broadcasting, and for the first time in years, I no longer knew who I was or why I was here. Looking back now, I see the time was perfect for my experiment. I had read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount plenty of times before, but normally briskly. These famous words in chapters 5 to 7 of Matthew's biography of Jesus contain much reassurance, like how the grieving will be comforted, the poor blessed, and all of us provisioned by God's care. But for the most part, the sermon is challenging, demanding, radical. It was easy to breeze past the hard bits about loving one's enemies, when just ahead lay the nice ones about God giving us good gifts. Then one day I started my experiment. I decided to read the sermon every day for a month. All of it, not just the comforting bits. Each morning I read it slowly and prayerfully, either in whole or in part, and on weekends I studied it in depth. The experiment stretched beyond one month to two, and then on to three. Before I knew it, the sermon had taken hold of me. And for good reason... In the sermon I found a guide to the essential aspects of life, our callings, relationships, practices, choices. From sex to prayer to conflict to possessions, the sermon covers the grittiest of topics without embarrassment or apology. In it I discovered the radical idea that little people like us are God's change agents in the world. And in it I read that if we put Jesus' words into practice, we will lead resilient lives, lives that bound back after difficulty. For most of us in the West, life is full of freedom and opportunity. We can pursue almost any career. We can live almost any lifestyle. But dark clouds are never far away. A spouse leaves us. 
A client sues. Unemployment strikes us. Our dreams fail to come true. An illness, a loss, a betrayal, a tragedy, through them we find we are vulnerable to life's storms. And not only storms from without, but storms within. Desires turned lustful, ambition turned idolatrous, anger turned deadly, and other sins that can drown us. In the sermon we find one who calms storms with a word and leads us forth in strength. Though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against us, we will stand, not collapse, as Jesus says in the end of his sermon. My reading of the sermon each day began to shape me, revising my priorities, keeping desires in check, putting my dreams into perspective, influencing how I should act. In living out the sermon, I failed as much as I made progress, and I still do. But because perfection isn't possible, perfection wasn't the point. My heart was slowly being recalibrated to the heart of Jesus, who lived out everything he preached. Without my realising it, this was all helping me to start again. I made a lot of discoveries from my experiment. Those discoveries were recorded in my journal, later written into articles for the Our Daily Journey devotional, and now with significant expansion and additional material are presented in this book of 90 readings. As you'll hear, while the sermon is the main river we'll travel down, some connected streams are worth diverting into also. Jesus' sermon is expansive, drawing many biblical themes together. My advice is to listen to these readings slowly and prayerfully. There's no need to hurry. Resilient lives are built on a foundation, and foundations take time to prepare. The famous words of Jesus' sermon have been quoted by presidents, chanted by activists, pondered by theologians, and shouted by rock stars. They've been printed on posters, t-shirts, fridge magnets, and bumper stickers, depicted in artwork, shared on the net, etched in stone, and tattooed on skin. They've been admired, ignored, scorned, adored, preached, painted, and performed, but one thing is required if they're to manifest a resilient life. According to Jesus, they must be lived. As you listen and pray, expect to act. Expect to birth experiments in your own life. Some days we wake to a world of crystal skies and bright possibilities, and other days it's to rain pelting our windows, thunder rattling our roofs, winds shaking our walls, and torrents threatening to overwhelm us. Jesus never said we'd be spared the storms of life. We will creak under their winds, we will be tested and stretched, but in living out Jesus' words we're told we won't break. We will recover, spring back, just like the one who came bounding back after being stretched beyond all limits, scarred but triumphant, and ever resilient. Part 1. Your Invitation Come, whoever you are. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the earth. Matthew chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. They gather on the lush, rolling slopes to hear him. He sits down, taking the customary position of a teacher, and looks as many of them in the eye as he can. He has so many things to tell them. A deep draw of breath, and then he begins to talk. God blesses those who are poor and realise their need for him, he says, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. 
If you're anything like me, you've probably read the Sermon on the Mount's God blesses statements, called the Beatitudes, as a list of virtues Jesus wants us to pursue. So we think he wants us to be humble, as we read in Matthew 5 verse 5, to hunger for justice in verse 6, to be merciful in verse 7, pure in verse 8, and peace-loving in verse 9. These are all wonderful qualities to have, and are reinforced elsewhere in Scripture. And given that Jesus' sermon is all about action, it's a natural way to read these verses. But if we're to be consistent in reading the Beatitudes this way, some of these virtues become a bit tricky. Does Jesus really want us to become poor? Verse 3. To mourn? Verse 4. Or to be persecuted and insulted, as he does in verses 10 and 11? This way of reading the Beatitudes can also lead to a works-based understanding of God's salvation. Only when we are humble, gentle, merciful, and so on, will God then bless us. Perhaps Jesus was making a different point. Luke's recording of the Beatitudes suggests Jesus wasn't addressing people who thought they were poor, hungry, or sad, but people who literally were. You can see that in Luke chapter 6. This has led scholars like Dallas Willard, Scott McKnight, and others to suggest that Jesus' Beatitudes are not a list of virtues at all, but a list of outcasts rejected by society, but blessed by Jesus. Those who assembled on the mountain to hear Jesus speak were a motley group indeed, not the happy and successful people of the world, but those who had experienced trials and trouble. You can see who they were in Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 and 25. It was this group of people, those gathered before him, that he blessed. The economically and spiritually impoverished, the grief-stricken, the lowly, those seeking but denied justice, those who have shown mercy and lived rightly, peacemakers instead of political radicals, those persecuted for doing right or for following Jesus. All such people were written off by both the secular society and the religious elite of Jesus' day. To worldly leaders who valued strength rather than humility, and compliance to their wishes rather than rebellion for the sake of God, people with these qualities held little value. But they were valuable to Jesus. If this is what Jesus is saying, it means his sermon begins with a radical idea. It means Jesus ignores the world's popularity lists. It means he welcomes all who society rejects. The doors to his kingdom are flung open to the sick, the sad, the uneducated and unpretty to the picked on, the beaten up, the socially awkward and homeless, to pushers, dealers, con artists and killers, to the addicted or emotionally unstable, to you and to me. So come, whoever you are, Jesus takes us all. What written-off person do you know? How can you be as graceful towards them as Jesus is? Come, rich or poor. They were terrified, but the angel reassured them. Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. Luke chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Good news for all people. That's what the angel said. This radical invitation, the idea of God's house being open to all, that we are all beckoned to enter it whatever state we're in, begins well before Jesus sits to give his sermon. And while society's outcasts are given a special welcome, 
they're not the only ones offered the invitation. Scene 1. A small peasant home in Bethlehem, Judea. There a group of shepherds kneels before a baby sleeping in a feeding trough. The society of the day despises these shepherds as unclean, and that is why they can't believe they're here. How could they be given such a privilege? Scene 2. Also in that little peasant home. Now a group of princes stand gazing at that child. They are powerful, esteemed, and rich. You don't bring gifts of gold, incense, and myrrh without money. Their fine clothes and jewels look out of place in this village, but soon they also kneel before this exceptional child. For this child would become a boy, and this boy a man, and this man would be found to be so much more. A carpenter by trade, but a king by birth, the God of the universe visiting his people in person. From the beginning, this king would be different than others. As those shepherds kneel down, we see he's a king for the poor. And as those princes kneel down, we see he's a king for the rich. A fisherman kneels down. He is a king for the workers. A government official seeks his help. He is a king for the rulers. And what kind of king hobnobs with both religious leaders as we see right throughout the Gospels? This kind of king. Jesus begins his Sermon on the Mount lifting up the have-nots, the lowly, the poor, the ridiculed and unwanted, making it clear that while society might reject them, he does not. But that doesn't mean Jesus is automatically against the haves. Rich or poor, ruler or worker, priest or sinner, he came for us all. We can be wealthy or destitute, powerful or lowly. We can be burdened with all the shame our sins have brought upon us. Yet this king will accept us, heal us, forgive us, change us. Kneeling is most fitting before a king born for all. Have you ever felt unworthy of meeting Jesus? Have you ever thought others unworthy of him too? Come and be forgiven. By this time it was about noon, and darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. Luke chapter 23, verse 44. Things start well enough as Jesus begins his mission. Crowds flock to him, amazed at his miracles, and the doors of every synagogue are open to his teaching. Jesus is on the speaking circuit and is as popular as any itinerant preacher could wish to be but public sentiment will soon change. The religious leaders will be the first to raise alarm, suspicious of the company he'll keep, the claims he'll make and the power he'll heal by. His neighbourhood will ignore him, his synagogue will drive him out of town, and even his family will feel embarrassed by his actions. By the end of his days, he'll have been betrayed by a colleague, disowned by a friend, deserted by his followers, cursed by a thief, and seemingly abandoned by God himself. During his final hour, he will be enveloped in darkness, cold, naked, exposed, and oh so alone. The crowd's praise will fall silent. The loyalty of his followers will prove shallow. Curses will be hurled, nails will be hammered, crosses will be raised, and all those he's fed, befriended, healed, and forgiven will be nowhere to be seen. All he'll hear are the snickers of his betrayers, the whimpers of his mother, 
and the murmurs of the soldiers who gamble for his garments. This political disturber will be quashed. This blasphemous healer will be silenced. The sky will turn dark, a tear will fall from heaven, and at that moment all our sins will be forgiven. We must remember all this as we read the Sermon on the Mount. As Jesus preaches on that hillside, he knows what's ahead, that most of those listening so eagerly to him will soon deny him. The people he blesses in the Beatitudes will end up cursing him in their rejection. Those he came to be with will leave him dying alone. That most likely includes me, had I been there, and probably you too. And that makes his death for us so much more astounding. Jesus invites us into his kingdom, and we abandon him, and then he offers to forgive us. So come and be forgiven. Picture yourself at Jesus' crucifixion. Where are you in the crowd, and what are you saying? Picture Jesus looking at you from the cross. How does he look, and what is he saying to you? Come and be restored. So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord, and the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like Him as we are changed into His glorious image. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 I've had the privilege of interviewing many fascinating people during my years as a radio host. Ken Cooper's story is one I won't forget. By all impressions, Ken was the kind of guy you'd want living next door. A loving husband and father, a respected community leader, and a role model for underprivileged kids. But this mild-mannered neighbour had a dark side. Ken moonlighted as one of Florida's most wanted criminals. Ken began shoplifting as a child, was stealing cars by the time he reached college age, and turned to robbing banks when his wife died early from cancer. He told me, My robberies had nothing to do with money. The purpose was to feel alive, to defy this dead, depressed state I was in from losing my wife. Ken's 13-year double life ended when he was shot during a bank robbery and sentenced to 99 years in The Rock, Florida's infamous prison. With just five guards controlling 900 inmates, The Rock was a hellhole of knifings, beatings, murders and rape. But while there, Ken heard about Jesus from a prison chaplain and soon became a Christian. Some of Ken's cellmates did too, and their lives began to change. One day Ken and his friends adopted a kitten, who they named Mr Magoo. Mr Magoo's back had been broken for fun by other inmates, and he was blind from acid they'd thrown in his face. Ken and his friends held Mr Magoo each day, took turns feeding him, and even prayed for his sight to return. Mr Magoo was lavished with love, and his sight did return. Other miracles began to happen too. Rape rates began to decrease at the rock, and prison guards began asking Ken and his fellow Christians for prayer. But perhaps nothing signifies the change in the prisoners' lives better than their kind treatment of Mr Magoo. The justice system could sentence Ken and his cellmates for their behaviour, but it could never change their desires. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 7 and 13, while civil and religious laws are good and have their place, 
they can only help restrain evil at best, or at worst condemn us when we break them. Laws can't change hearts. In contrast, Jesus, by his Spirit, offers inner change. He doesn't just forgive us, he transforms us, restoring our souls to make us, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. Jesus restores the image of God in us that got distorted through sin, making us people of love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control instead. Jesus will have a lot to say about ethical living as his sermon continues. We'll come to grief trying to live out his instructions unless we realise he's there to empower us from within. On this, Ken Cooper would concur, for here is the invitation that turns hardened criminals into kitten-protecting gentlemen. Are you focusing on being good rather than letting Jesus change you? What sin or weakness will you offer to Jesus today to have transformed into his character? Come to be known. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. Psalm chapter 139, verse 2. He knows you. He knows every detail and nanosecond of your existence. Every atom, molecule, skin cell and ligament. Every hope, dream, interest and achievement. Every strength, weakness, gladness and grief. He knows you intimately, through and through. He knows every movement you will make today. Every action, step and pause for rest every blink, glance and breath. He knows when I will stop reading this paragraph and when you will stop hearing it. He knows everything about you, and he knows it thoroughly. He knows every thought you will have today, every joy, question, doubt and concern. Like a long-married husband who knows his wife so well he can finish her sentences, God knows the next word you'll say before it's left your lips. He knows you. He's familiar with you. He knows your complete personality. He knows your emotional triggers, behavioural patterns, your bad habits and comfort zones. He knows what you're good at, lousy at, tempted by and victorious over. He can unravel the intricate workings of your heart when you remain confused. There is no rock large enough, no place far enough, no darkness thick enough to hide you from him. But why would you want to hide? Loneliness isn't just the feeling of being alone but of being surrounded by many and known by none. But he knows you. He's the knowing one. He was there as you were crafted in the womb. He remembers the headlines from the day of your birth and knows the events to take place on your final day on earth. He knows what your future holds and the pathways you will take to arrive there. He knows you. In a world of global connections but ever-declining intimacy, of burgeoning cities with more and more alienated souls, of billions of individuals who secretly wonder if anyone really cares, here is a truth that heals and liberates. The one who invites you on that hillside knows you. He knows you through and through. How does it feel to be known so intimately? In return, how intimately would you say you know God right now? Thank you.
come to be rewarded. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad, for a great reward awaits you in heaven. Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. Janice is an attractive woman in her mid-thirties. She has looks, friends, and a successful career. A few years ago, she also became a Christian, to the horror of her atheist father. Since then, visits home have become more and more difficult. Each week, her father pummels her with reasons why she should abandon her fairy tale faith. There is a kind of concern behind the father's relentless pursuit of Janice's deconversion. Janice longs to be married, but has decided to marry only a Christian. Her father wants to see his daughter fulfilled and sees her faith as the roadblock. What you believe is a lie, he tells her, and it's keeping you from marrying available men. Janice often feels weary enduring her father's words. Jesus tells us following him can result in trouble. Almost all of his apostles will meet a violent death, and a myriad of Christians throughout the centuries will lose their lives following him too. Most of us won't face that kind of persecution. For us, the trials may come in the form of ridicule, lost job opportunities, or, like Janice, family tension. Jesus foresees his coming will divide whole households along border lines of belief. Your enemies will be right in your own household, he says. Ironically, following the Prince of Peace can result in war. But Jesus also says those who suffer for his name will be rewarded. The poor will receive the kingdom, the humble will inherit the earth, those hungry for justice will be satisfied, the pure in heart will see God. God himself is the ultimate prize, as is his kingdom, but Jesus also promises rewards in this life too, like relationships to match our sacrifice, as he says in Luke chapter 18 verses 29 and 30. Whatever the rewards are, and whenever they come, we don't serve a God who demands obedience for the sake of it. This God loves to reward us. I admire my friend Janice. To follow Jesus, she has faced the full force of family opposition to her faith and denied her own desires. She loves her parents, continually weathering their attacks on her beliefs. And as her older sister has a child, her younger sister gets married and her own wait for a single Christian man stretches on and on, Janice stays faithful to her first love. One day... She will receive her reward in full. Has your obedience to Jesus ever caused you to suffer? Is he a higher priority to you than your desires? Come to expand your heart. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Dallas Willard once described the Sermon on the Mount as a pilgrimage into the heart and life of God. I think he was right, and as we journey into the sermon, we shouldn't be surprised to find our own hearts expanding as Jesus shows us what is of greatest concern to God. We've already established that the Beatitudes aren't a list of character traits we should be aiming for. 
Jesus isn't inviting us to become poor, to mourn, or to go and get persecuted so we can be blessed. The Beatitudes are a list of people, particularly on God's heart. Read through scripture, and it soon becomes apparent God has always had a particular concern for the poor, the forgotten, and the vulnerable. You can see this in Deuteronomy 10 and 15. When God arrives on earth in human form, these are the very people he blesses first. And so here's the key question. Shouldn't the people on God's heart be the people on our hearts too? If God blesses the poor, shouldn't we? Shouldn't we bless them with our presence, with education, health care and employment opportunities? If God blesses those who mourn, shouldn't we? Shouldn't we bless them with listening ears, comforting arms, practical help and home visits? If God blesses the humble and pure in heart, shouldn't we? Shouldn't we encourage them in their journeys and learn from their ways? If God blesses those who hunger for justice, shouldn't we? Shouldn't we support their fight for a fair wage or join in their anti-trafficking campaigns? If God blesses the merciful, shouldn't we? Shouldn't we visit hospitals, rehabilitate prisoners, help the homeless and befriend the addicted? If God blesses those who work for peace, shouldn't we? Shouldn't we stand with those who choose non-violent ways to help liberate their oppressed people? And if God blesses the persecuted, shouldn't we? Shouldn't we support fellow Christians who suffer for their faith, or whistleblowers, or the abused? In Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul calls us imitators of God. As students of our teacher, as the arms, ears, and voice of Jesus, we are to be about God's business, blessing what he blesses. As World Vision founder Bob Pierce famously prayed, Let my heart be broken with the things that break the heart of God. On that mountainside, as the crowds listen, the children play, and the disciples wonder just what they've gotten themselves into, Jesus extends an invitation to us all to have our heart expanded as big as God's heart. How often is your heart broken by the things that break the heart of God? Who is God stirring you to bless today? Thank you.